Then they said to him, Tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business and where are you from? What is your country and what people are you from? He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by a great fear and said to him, What is this you've done? And the men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do with you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, Please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life, and don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done just as you have pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. The men were seized by a great fear of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm so thankful, Lord, for this church where we can gather to sing praises to your name, to learn about who you are. In hopeful anticipation, Father, for the day that we will be on your holy mountain, Lord, where you yourself will teach us of who you are for eternity and for endless days, we will sing your praise, Father. But while we're here, Father, I pray that we would not disregard the mission that you've given us, Father, that we would not ignore the Great Commission, Father, that we would not forget your grace and your mercy that you have shown to us, Father, and not go out and reach out to other people. Father, I pray that we we may not run from your will, Father, that we may not sleep when you have called us to missions, Lord, locally and globally. Father, I pray that we would respond with fear and trembling, Lord, for who you are, but with great excitement and joy to do all that you have commanded us to do. Father, we love you. I pray that this service would just glorify your name, Father, and that you would just continue to make us more and more like your son each and every day. It's in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, what a joyful worship time you have given us. To sing to the glory of Jesus in the power of the Spirit. In the presence of the living God, a privilege you have given us as your people to rejoice in our salvation and to be convicted by being confronted with the state of the world around us and the lostness of those separated from your love because of their rejection of Christ or their lack of knowledge of Him and separation through their sin. Oh God, help us. Move our hearts today. Stir deeply within us. Father, some have gathered who've lost their sense of purpose or never known it. And I pray today that you would grant the grace of the work of your Holy Spirit through the preaching of your word and through the gathering of your people that we may be informed today why we exist and to whose glory we are called to live and in what privilege we live in as sons and daughters of the living God through faith in Christ our Lord. By the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Oh, thank You, Father. We praise You. And Father, some have gathered today and they're hurting And I pray that the lesson we teach today will remind them that you care about all and that you are deeply intent on the salvation of broken, hurting men and women from every tongue and tribe and nation. And I pray you will stir us to join you in your great work of redemption. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What a joy to be with you today and to have this time of worship with you. I am.
Did y'all enjoy that worship time today in the in song? Was that was that not? Give them a hand. Tell them how much you appreciate that. My goodness, what a joy! I was just about to jump out of my skin up here singing, and it's just really beautiful. Thank God. We're working through the book of Jonah. I was in touch with our missionary team in South America this week, especially our, particularly our brother Gary Wester. They had earlier invited me down to teach a conference to the missionaries uh, starting February 14th and going through uh, the following week. I'll be coming back on the 23rd and shared with them what we were studying and Gary asked me, he says, what do you think a study would be good uh, on the book of Jonah for missionaries? I mean, they're, they're already there, and I've learned that this study is not about missions. It's about attitudes. You can be a very active missionary and still be completely possessed with the wrong attitude about others. And so, I told Gary, absolutely, we... I think it would be beneficial and it would uh, help them. So I'm looking forward to that. You can be praying for me in that ministry as we minister to the missionaries and encourage them. Just a little bit of review from the following, uh, the, the past few weeks and what we've been covering. I think it's important to touch on a couple of things. First, in your outline, something I don't have... Um, a PowerPoint slide for, but that first block, the missional mindset. I just want to remind us, this is it. It is to seek to know God, to grow in His likeness, and as a result, to show others what He is like. This was Jonah's ministry. It was to know God as a prophet of God. It was to grow in the likeness of God, so that as a prophet of God and as a missionary of God, he could display to others what God is like. In a sense, the understanding that as God's people, redeemed from our sin, born again through faith in Jesus Christ, inhabited by the very Holy Spirit of God Himself, we are transformed in such a way that we have the privilege of demonstrating the nature and character of God in how we treat other people. Through telling the truth in a gracious, loving, missional, um, humble way of engaging with them, so that they may know the truth about the living God. So they may know the love of the living God. So they may be redeemed by the Son of the living God. And they may have eternal life in heaven with the presence forever of the living God. So we, we have this wonderful privilege. And this is our missional call. To know Him. To grow in His likeness. And to show others what He is like. Jonah failed... At the second and third part of that, he knew God. He spoke for him. You have that passage we covered in First, excuse me, Second Kings. We talked about it last week, where it was under his preaching that the expansion of northern Israel took place because he directed the king to carry out some work that would expand the kingdom back to some of the earlier borders from the time of David. And Jonah spoke the word of the Lord to that king. And so, he knew God to a degree. Because that knowledge did not become internalized in a willingness to surrender, to become formed in the image, the likeness, the shape of that God, he did not carry out showing others what God was like. In fact, Jonah doesn't want, listen, he doesn't want his enemies to know what God is really like. Please hear me. Jonah would rather his enemies die than know what God is like. 
He would rather them suffer the consequences of eternal condemnation than to know that God is merciful, compassionate, long-suffering, forgiving, and gracious. And he's angry that God made Himself known that way. So as we enter into Jonah chapter 1 today, and we break down some of what's going on in the chapter, we need to be reminded that what Jonah's struggling with is not missions. He does the mission. In chapter 3, you know the story. He does the mission. He goes and he preaches. But at the end, his attitude is so bad, he says this. He said, I would rather die than people know that you are gracious and compassionate and forgiving. Jonah did not want his enemies to be delivered. He did not want them to be forgiven. The hatred that welled up within his heart caused him to wish more for their death than for their salvation. And so this is a great issue of attitude. So that's one of the things we'll be covering. Let's be reminded of just a few things from last week. The book of Jonah is about three kinds of hearts. First, the heart of the self-righteous, the arrogant heart. I'm right, you're wrong, I got it together, you don't. I have this mastered, I'm not concerned with you mastering it. And so he's Jonah, filled with self-righteousness, the Next heart we talked about was the rebel heart, the wicked heart. It was the heart of the Ninevites. It was the heart of the sailors that he was among. These were pagans who disregarded the God of the universe in trade for all kinds of false deities, all kinds of image worship, all kinds of falsehoods and myths. And they chose, rather than serve the true God, to pursue false gods. And then we have the heart of the Redeemer, God. It's a heart that is pursuing all across the earth. You hear that so clear when Jesus says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to judge the world, but that through Him the world might be saved. Jesus said to His disciples, As the Father has sent Me, so send I you. So in the same way that Jesus was sent not for the condemnation and the judgment of the world, but for the salvation, we are sent. We can't be the sacrifice, but we are to live sacrificially. And so this is the Redeemer, the heart of God, the pursuing heart, revealed to us personally and in the flesh by Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. One of the topics that the book of Jonah takes up, and Tim Keller in his book about Jonah covers very well, is the topic of grace. He talks about, first, a thing called common grace. A thing called common grace. Here's what common grace is. God bestows gifts of wisdom, moral insight, goodness, and beauty across humanity regardless of race or religious belief. Common grace is the fact that when God created humans in His image, they still bear the vestiges of that image. They still bear some likenesses of the One in whose image we were created. Regardless of where they grow up, regardless of their culture or their religion or their identity, They still bear some kind, though marred by sin, some kind of likeness of God. And this common grace is given to humanity, and we actually see it in operation with these sailors, that they have wisdom 
to try to fight the storm when Jonah is not using what he has to fight it. He's sleeping through it. They use wisdom of unload the cargo, material wisdom. They use wisdom of pray to your gods, spiritual wisdom. They're trying, though unable to deliver themselves, they're trying, we've got to find some way to be saved. Whether it's by materially working through our salvation, or it's spiritually working through our salvation, we know that we need to be saved, and relationally we need to work together for this. And so this common grace moves into laboring for the common good. It moves into laboring for the common good. All of a sudden, these sailors, they're dumping their stuff. They're working together for the common good of everybody who's on the ship because they understand this one truth. We're all in this boat together. It doesn't matter what our background is. It doesn't matter where we've come from. Our ethnicities are not the issue now. Our deities are not the issue. Our issue is we are going to sink. And if we don't have some deliverance, we're all going to die. So they're all in the boat together. Jonah... The pagans, each one with his own deity, each one with his own ethnicity. But suddenly, they have to work together in common grace for the common good. Which leads them to this, where they all pursue a common goal. They begin saying, we need to be saved. Is there anyone among us who knows A true salvation. Does anybody know how to rescue us from this? We've tried our material solutions. We dumped the cargo. Storm got worse. We tried our spiritual solutions. We called to all of these false gods that we believe in. And nothing could help us. Let's cast lots and see if there's somebody who is to blame. The casting of lots was a common practice in times of old where they saw the sovereignty of God leading to every decision. The book of the Proverbs says the lot is cast in the lap, but the decision belongs to the Lord. And so they cast lots and the lot falls. I don't know how they do it. Draw straws, pick sticks, not sure what it was. But they realize Jonah has some tie to this situation. And as they're working for this common goal of salvation, they're looking, does anybody among us have the right answer? Listen carefully. You are living in a world that's trying to materially solve their problem, and materialism is not solving it. You're living in a world that is trying to spiritually solve their problem and they're trying every kind of spirituality known in the universe and they're engaging in it, but they're failing in the one way and that is through faith in Jesus Christ whom God sent to save us and you are in the boat with them and you have the answer. You. You. They're buying and selling. Their stocks are going up, going down. They're getting houses and they're getting land and they're getting stuff and they're getting high and they're getting low and they're getting into Eastern religions and they're getting into pagan religions. And you have the answer. And this boat is sinking. And everyone is at risk. And so the common goal becomes how can we be saved? So that moves us into four words that I want you to take home today that thrill me in understanding God and disappoint me in understanding me and Jonah and modern Christianity. Let's start with the word interest. The book of Jonah is about interest. 
What are you interested in? What is your interest in this? It opens up with God's interest. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Get up! Go to Nineveh! For their evil has risen up before me and speak against that city. Jonah tells us in chapter 3 and chapter 4, he knew exactly what God's interest was. God's interest was in saving Jonah's enemies. God's interest was in redeeming the pagan. In delivering them from their sin. Now, listen carefully. If you haven't studied the history of Israel, you're probably going, what was the big deal with Nineveh? Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian nation and it was on the move. It was on the rise. It lay to the north and east of Israel. As the Assyrian kingdom grew, its dominance grew, its kings were nefarious in how they went about winning wars. They were scary good in battle and in fear tactics. What we would call terror tactics. They knew how to flay men alive. They knew how to put things like the heads of their captors on poles and parade them in front of the people who knew the face that belonged on that head. They were good at it. Jonah's preaching is sometime between 780 and 750 B.C. And if you're thinking through it, what does that date have to do with anything? Somewhere between 30 and 60 years after Jonah's message to Nineveh, Nineveh marched into northern Israel and killed pretty much everybody. The idea of Jonah considering them an enemy was not a far-fetched idea. Jonah's grandchildren would be the recipients of the wickedness of Nineveh, because they had turned to God and then a new king would come along and they would turn back away from God. And because Israel would not turn to God, but turned away from God, God allowed those very Ninevites, grandchildren of those who had repented, to come down and destroy Jonah's entire nation, laying it waste not to be reawakened until the return after the decree of Darius and Cyrus, kings of Persia. So when Jonah thought about these guys as the enemy, he wasn't exaggerating. When he thought about calls to hate these people for their terroristic threats on his nation, he was not outside of reason. But in spite of all of those things, God loved Jonah's enemies. We hear this reverberate in the words of Jesus. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who spitefully use you. For as doing this, you will prove yourselves to be sons of the Most High God who sends rain upon the just and the unjust and causes the sun to shine on the righteous and the wicked. God loves those made. In His image. The book of Jonah is about the enmity that humans develop between each other that cause attitudes wherein we no longer care for the souls of men and women made in the image of God. And we justify it with all of our human reasons. That attitude is entrenched in Jonah's life 
God's interest is in the salvation of these people. You want to see it highlighted? Listen to how God contrasts his attitude with Jonah's attitude. We have to jump all the way to chapter 4. Let's go there. Let's read it. And, and, and I hope that it disturbs you as much as it disturbs me. In the end of the story, God asked Jonah, is it right for him to be angry? Jonah says, well, yeah, that's right. I didn't want these people to be saved. I didn't want them to turn to you. I didn't want you to relent from the punishment of these wicked people. I didn't want them to have a relationship with you. No, I'm, yeah, you're right, I'm angry. I'm so angry, I want to die. And so it says that Jonah went out and he built this little hut to kind of watch over Nineveh, hoping that maybe their repentance was fake and God would destroy them anyway. And so he goes out there, he builds this little hut. God causes this little plant to pop up overnight, and this plant shields him from the blazing sun and this scorching wind that comes. And then the next morning, this this little bug comes up and eats the plant. And the plant dies, and Jonah's like super angry, and he's just bitter with God. He's so bitter he just wants to die. And God asks him this question. He says in verse 10, So the Lord said, You cared about the plant which you did not labor over, and it did not, and, and did not grow it, and it appeared but in a night, and perished in a night. But may I not care about... Listen to God. God's having to explain Himself to the prophet. He said, You know what, Jonah? You're more interested in the plant than people created in my image. You're more worried about the worm that killed the plant than the sin that kills souls. You're more worried about what will make you comfortable by shading you from the heat than these people being delivered from eternal condemnation. Jonah, there's something wrong with you. There's something really deeply wrong with you. And so God's interest is in salvation of humans. And He has appointed the church. Listen to these clarion calls that God, that God gives to the church. What are those clarion calls? Go and make disciples of all the nation, teaching them to observe everything whatsoever I commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Tells us, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Tells us in Acts 1.8. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. He says to us, there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved than the name of Jesus. And He sends us out with that. God is interested in saving souls. And His interest is far above ours. Because God proves His interest in what He is willing to spend to save them. God proves His interest by what He is willing to spend to save them. For God so loved the world that He gave. Put spend there. That He spent His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God's interest is displayed in how He spends. Jonah's interest is so displayed, he's caught up in his ethnicity, he's caught up in nationalism. Jonah's caught up in self-preservation. Jonah's caught up in his comfort because the little tree gave him a little shade and went away and now he's angry at God, angry enough to die because he doesn't have a little shade anymore. And listen, I want to share something with you. Write this one down somewhere. If you really want to know people's spiritual condition, Watch them when they don't get their way about something important to them. <laughs> watch me. You want to see my spiritual condition? You watch me when I don't get my way about something that's important to me. I am a big old baby. You watch a person when they don't get their way about something that's important to them. Jonah doesn't get his way and he says, man, I'd just rather die. He's that angry with God. I could spend all day on this, but I can't. So here we go, number two. I threw that in there. Compare Jonah's, God's interest to Jonah's interest. Number two, intent. 
Second word. First word, interest. What's God interested in? Salvation. Well, then what is His intent? He intends to save people. Every time we get a chance to go out and share the gospel, we need to go knowing that God's intent is to save people. What was Jonah's intent? i got to get out of here. I have to get away from God. Notice where Jonah's fleeing. Look in chapter 1, verse 3, last part of the verse. He went down into the boat to go with them to Tarshish to get away from what? What's he trying to get away from? The Lord's presence. He's trying to get away from the Lord's presence. Why? Because as God gets closer to Jonah, Jonah knows more about what he's really like. Listen, when God got close to Isaiah, what did Isaiah do? Write this down. Nearer equals clearer. The nearer God gets to us, the clearer we see ourselves. It's why so many Christians walk at a distance from God under the guise of religion. Jonah's walking at a distance from God. Listen, Jonah's trip away from God didn't start the day that God gave him this message. It had been brewing a long time. Because the more he knew about what God was like, the less he liked what God was like. So much so that he didn't like to be around God because it made him feel sinful. Nearer equals clearer. God appears to Isaiah. Go with me. Isaiah chapter 6. You know this one? Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated high, seated high and lofty on the throne. And the hem of his robe filled the temple, and seraphim were standing above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. With two they flew, and one called to another, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voice, and the temple was filled with smoke. And all of a sudden, God gets real near to Isaiah, and it becomes real clear to Isaiah what he's really like. He's a prophet. This is not knucklehead off the street. This is a prophet of God who faithfully knows the Lord and the Lord's Word. And as God draws near to him, all of a sudden Isaiah gets a clear picture of what he's like because he gets a clear picture of what God is like. And listen to his words. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is what Jonah did not want. Jonah was not fleeing from the task. He wasn't fleeing from the call. He was fleeing from the caller. Jonah had caller ID. And he said, oh no, I don't want to talk to him. In fact, I need to get out of cell phone range. And so he takes off. And the thing he's fleeing is not the call. He's fleeing the caller. Because the closer God gets to us, the more we're aware of how sinful we are and how there is no way we can be purified apart from the miraculous work of God. That's why Isaiah says, and the Lord sent one of those seraphim and he grabbed a coal from the altar. That's the altar where the blood would fall during the sacrifice. And he brought that and he touches Isaiah on the lips and he says, you're cleansed. Only by an act of God can we be cleansed. This is a picture of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. Oh my goodness. Jonah's intent. Listen careful. Intent follows interest. Intent follows interest. What you intend to do is based on what you're interested in. How you're going to spend today is dependent upon what you're interested in. When the saints come on tonight, if you're interested in them and you're not interested in learning about evangelism, sharing the gospel, I know where you're going to be. Because your intent is going to lead and follow right out of your interest. You're interested in this. This is what you intend to do. And this is true of everybody. It's not, it's not just Jonah. It's all of us. And I'm picking on you about football, but listen, it's just not football. It's everything. 
It's revealed all the time, every day. And so Jonah, based on his interest, had this intent. I am not interested in the salvation of souls. I am not interested in the Ninevites coming to God. I am not interested in them being spared. So I'll tell you what I intend to do. I intend to get away from the guy who's pressing me to go to him. And I'm going to get away from God. Now there's two ways to run from God. One way you run from God is just in debauchery and the other is in religion. There's one quote Tim Keller talks about, about one young lady who says in a Flannery O'Connor novel, I believe it is, that the way to stay away from Jesus was to stay away from sin. So if you could fly under the cloak of righteousness, you wouldn't admit that you needed the slaughter of the Son of God to deliver you from the depth of your sin. If you could just stay moral and pretend you didn't need Him, you could hide from God and His presence in the very religion that was intended to awaken your soul and bring you into His presence. Intent follows interest. Jonah is intent on escaping that which confronts what is within him. He wants to avoid, escape, and evade the presence of God. It's just like Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve realize that they're sinful, and that the presence of God makes them more fully aware of their sinfulness, they start tying up some weeds and trying to cover themselves with a fig leaf, and they run off in the woods to hide from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because nearer is clearer. When God starts getting close to you, you will start getting aware of your sinfulness. And it will be a terribly uncomfortable moment. It will be so uncomfortable that it might be easier to be thrown in the sea than to see the truth about yourself. Number three. Identity. What's at stake here is that Jonah has chosen an identity that is not related to God, but is related to privileges that one might get from God. And so he wants to preserve his privilege Look at the quote I put from Tim Keller. It's worth walking through here. It's in in your outline. Though the question about race comes last in the sailor's list, what is your mission, what is your country, who are your people, Jonah answers it first. I'm a Hebrew. He says that before anything else. In a text so sparing with words, it is significant that he reverses the order and puts race out in front as the most significant part of his identity. Jonah's relationship with God was not as basic to his significance as his race was. That is why when loyalty to his people and loyalty to the Word of God seemed to be in conflict, he chose to support his nation over taking God's love and message to a new society. And that's a powerful quote. Somehow, we let nationalism, political forces, ethnicities, tribalism, theological, economic differences give us permission to hate other people. Please hear that. We let those things that get entrenched in us as identity to give us permission to hate other people. This is bad. This is the core of the transformative power of God, the Gospel. When Jesus sends us to love our neighbor and love our enemy and pray for those who persecute us, and He sends us out as sheep among wolves, He sends us out knowing there's something you and I can't preserve. Listen, we cannot preserve an identity that is not in Christ. If you are trying to preserve an identity that is not in Christ, I will quote Jim Elliot to you. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order that he may gain what he cannot lose. We have to settle our identity issue, my brothers and sisters. And if our identity is rooted in Jesus, then it will give us permission to forgive and love all people. It will. 
But if our identity is in anything else, listen carefully, I'm going to tell you how we are going to function because I'm guilty of this. We'll function in a protectionistic stance. We will function in a stance in which we are working more for self-preservation or identity preservation than for the labor of bringing souls into the kingdom that they may know the king and be forgiven of their sin and enjoy the grace of God freely given to anyone who will call upon the name of Jesus. And our identity gets caught up in politicism, nationalism, ethnicism, economicism, tribalism, theologicalism. And it gives us, listen, Baptists, over just the last ten years of my life, I've watched Baptists hate each other over theological differences. I've watched our own church be hated on, spoken ill of, over theological differences. This tribalism, all of these, they grow up out of the roots of hell itself. They're not from God. My brothers and sisters, there is only one eternal identity and one secure identity. And that identity is in Jesus Christ. Every other identity will be surrendered to that. And you see the glory of that in the book of Revelation chapter 7 when it says, And I looked and behold, there was an unnumerable crowd out there. And it was from every tongue and every tribe and every language, every nation. And what were they doing? Worshiping the Lamb. Their identity had become swallowed up in Jesus. Did they still have different tongues? Yes. Did they still have different ethnicities? Yes. But they had all been surrendered to the one. And so, identity is an issue. My brothers and sisters, we've got to settle the identity issue. If we go out here today and what we're working for is to protect our identity, either nationalistic, politically, theologically, what we're working is to protect our identity, it'll give us permission to hate and exclude and unevangelize other people. And we'll be just like Jonah. Listen, while we're on mission. We can all pack up, go to Ecuador, share the gospel with Asachila. We can go all over the world. We can get, and we'll be just like Jonah. And so God is working on something beyond mission, but our very identity. So, we close it with this involvement. When our interest is right, as God's was, not Jonah's, and our intent follows our interest, as God had, salvation of others, the grace of God brought through Jesus Christ to all the kingdoms of the earth, And our identity gets right where we're not trying to preserve something from a position of defensiveness, but we are bringing something from a position of inclusive evangelism to all the nations to come to Christ and be identified in Him, then we will get involved. It's interesting, in Jonah, go back there for a moment, pop over to Isaiah, go back to Jonah. In the middle of this, Everybody's involved with the salvation of the people on the ship except Jonah. He's asleep. They wake him up and he doesn't immediately start praying. They actually have to tell him, you need to do what we're doing. And what they do is they call Jonah out for not being involved in the very thing that he could have been involved with. What? The salvation of the people on that ship. They were perishing and Jonah is sleeping And he wakes up and he doesn't even call out to his God. They actually have to shake him and say, Arise, sleeper, and call on your God. And he doesn't call on God until chapter 2. He doesn't call on Him. He doesn't say a prayer of repentance. God, I'm sorry, we're going to turn the ship around. God, it's wrong. None of that is like... He just stops. And the ship's going down. And finally, in the casting of the lots, they figure out it's Jonah, and Jonah's called out. It's interesting. They asked him who he was. 
He answers in verse 9. I'm a Hebrew, so his ethnicity was above all other things, which means he had a little problem with his identity. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were seized by a great fear and said to him, What have you done? In other words, he's calling out, the men are calling out the prophet for not doing his job. What are you doing? Don't you care that we're perishing? Do you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? What the rich man said in hell? What did he say? Send someone to my family. These guys call out the prophet and say, What have you done? Notice it says the men knew that he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he told them. After whatever he says at the beginning, he says, well, here's what's going on. I'm running away from God. <laughs> what? what? You've put us all at risk? Got the, they draw the straws. He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will calm down for you. I want to close with this. I, I really want to say a lot more, but I think this will help. Here's Jonah. He's in the boat with unbelievers, pagans. Trusting in material rescue, throwing stuff overboard. Trusting in false spiritual rescue, crying out to the gods. And Jonah takes... No initial interest in their salvation. And the thing that he's missing is they're all in the boat together. And they're all in the boat sinking. And they're all in the boat perishing. They're all in the boat going down. And Jonah, until this very moment, takes no action, no involvement to the well-being and the salvation of the people in that boat. And finally, in a little bit of a getting it saying... Well, here's why the boat's in this condition. It's because I'm fleeing from God. Throw me overboard. And the guys are like, we're not doing that. Row, baby, row. Throw more stuff off. So they're trying once again. And finally they realize the storm gets worse and worse and worse and they throw Jonah into the sea. Listen, I want you to see, I want you to try to get a picture of the universe for a second. Imagine... That you're God and you can see the whole universe at once. You can't, but imagine. And you're looking out, think of some of the pictures you've seen from NASA and pictures from telescopes, and you're just looking at the whole universe. Alright? And there's this one place in the universe where these people are living. Made in your image. And imagine that that planet's like a boat and it's sinking. What would you do? What would you do? Is sinking and they're rebellious and they hate you even though you made them and every good thing you gave them. What would you do? It's a boat and it's sinking. Here's what God did. He got in the boat with us. The birth of Jesus Christ is the choice of God to get in your sinking, stinking boat. Because He knows you're sinking. He knows you're perishing. And He understands in such a way that the only way for you to get out of this is for Him to get in with you. That's love. We were His enemies shaking our fist at Him, falsely representing Him with idols and vain worship and vain words. Yet in His love, He steps out of eternity into time, taking on flesh and blood, and He becomes 100% God and 100% human all at the same time. 
And he walks among us and he gets in our boat not to sink us. But just like Jonah. You remember what Jonah said? You throw me in the abyss and the sea will calm for you. Jesus chose to use Jonah as an example of his life. And he said, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. And here's what happened. The men of the earth rejected God in the flesh when He came to seek and save the lost. And we threw Him into the abyss of death. But listen what happened in that moment. The raging sea of God's wrath calmed down so that men and women could be saved. This is great. God saw you in your sinking boat and He got in. And in getting in, He saved you. And here's what He's asking you to do. Step up. And get into other sinking boats. Go to your enemies. Go to the nations. Go to everyone. Get in their boat with them. It may cost you your life. But what will come from it is their life will be saved. Would you bow with me? I want you to know the great love of God He first loves you enough to tell you the truth that real wrath is coming after you if you do not turn from your sin. Just as He cried out against Nineveh, He cries out against you. If you do not turn to Him, you will perish. But in love, He steps out of eternity into human skin and He gets in your boat so that He can save you from the very wrath of the storm of God and His righteousness against sin. He loves you and He wants to save you. He shows us so clearly in Jonah. God's intent is salvation. His interest is salvation. His involvement is salvation. And He wants you to have your identity in Him. Jesus Christ lived for you sinlessly. He died for you. Substitutionally, that means taking your place. And He was raised from the dead to save you from your sinking ship. Don't be fooled. Your ship will sink without Jesus. You need Him. Invite Him now to save you. Call upon Him in faith and believe that He died for your sins on the cross. Trust Him. Would you do that now? Believer, you're here today and you may be carrying a Jonah attitude towards somebody. You may be filled with unforgiveness, hate. You may have demonized some politician, political party, some nation, some nationality, some ethnicity. You know And God's getting near to you and you're trying to run from His presence. Let Him get near so you can do like Isaiah and say, Whoa, it's me! I'm a sinful person. I live among sinful people. Let Him change you. He will. God, today as we invite folks to follow you, invite believers to repent, grant that today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Would you come as God leads you?